0: Hello,
1: and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 597 with Alex Carter. Alex has some masterful wisdom that can help you get more of what you want in any negotiation and broadens our perspectives that negotiations are bigger than when you're buying a house or getting a job offer, but all kinds of scenarios. So, you'll learn one, the four questions that help you negotiate better, two, how to boost your confidence going into a negotiation, and three, how to increase your chances of getting a yes from your boss. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please visit com slash EP597. That's EP597. And you can see those resources there. And while you're checking out resources at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to sign up for the gold nugget email list. When you're on it, you can get a summary email of all the wisdom that Alex shared in about a three minute read, as well as access to the whole vault of every one of these summaries we've ever done, which is almost 600 now. Crazy. It's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's Alex's story. Alex Carter is the director of the mediation clinic at Columbia Law School, where she's also an award winning professor and a world renowned negotiation trainer for the United Nations. She also serves as executive director of Stand Up Girls, helping tween girls develop relationships for greater self esteem and resilience. She's appeared on CBS This Morning, MSNBC's Live Weekend, and Hardball Marketplace, and in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She lives in Maplewood, New Jersey, with her husband and daughter. Big thanks to Alex for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out Here's Alex. Alex, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk negotiation, and I'd love it if you could kick us off by sharing one of your coolest negotiating stories.
2: Sure. Coolest negotiating stories. How about the first time I ever negotiated my own salary?
1: That sounds like a good one. Let's go it.
2: So, yes. You know, I'm one of these people who, and and some of your listeners may relate, early on in my career, I worked at places that were all lockstep. So I never had much to negotiate. Well, fast forward to the first moment in my 30s that I ever negotiated my salary. Went in, power suit on, ready for battle. And to my surprise, they came in slightly above what I was expecting. So had just enough on the ball to keep my face neutral, said, thank you so much, I'll get back to you, went out and called a senior woman in my field. And I said, I'm not sure what to do. They came in above. And she said, I'm going to tell you what to do, Alex. You're going to go in there and you're going to ask for more. And I said, I'm going to ask for more. And she said, yes, because when you teach someone how to value you, you teach him how to value all of us, meaning women. And so if you're not going to do it for yourself, I want you to go in and do it for the woman who's coming after you. Do it for the sisterhood. Okay. And so that was the moment when I realized that asking for more and negotiating and claiming my value actually was not a selfish act. That in doing that, I could create more seats, not fewer, around the table for people to join me.
1: Well, that is, that's a beautiful reframe right there in in terms of, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. Is benefiting, you know, more persons than just you. It's funny. I, I think sometimes when we hear about negotiation and we think about, like, the tactics and the power phrases, I think about Michael Scott <laughs> in the office. Oh, like, God, yes. Oh, trick number 31 <laughs> or, or, or whatever. And and for you, it sounded like it's just like, okay, you did your research. You said you're going to think about it. And then you just suggested a a higher number. And it sounds like, unless you're skipping any juicy details, that there weren't a lot of um, secret weapons you were employing there.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting, Pete, and I'm so glad you brought that up about people thinking it's all about the secret weapon, the decision tree, or some complicated algorithm that's going to get you the best results. The truth is that Ask for More is in part, it's my book, It's in part the story of a woman who learned how to ask for more, but it's also about the power of questions. Questions are actually the number one underutilized weapon in negotiation. When you go into a negotiation and front load your questions, you're not only going to get more information, you're going to end up with better deals
1: okay, well, that's that's very tempting to jive right in. but first, I want to touch base on in terms of maybe the, the why or what's at stake with negotiating skills. So I, I think naturally you'd be think, hey, yeah, you can have some more money uh, if you negotiate. so but what are maybe some of the other opportunities that we don't even think about negotiating?
2: Yeah, negotiation is about a lot more than money. You know, Pete, in fact, let's zoom out a bit because I think a lot of times when people hear the word negotiation, they think of, you know, kind of what we started talking about at the beginning of this uh, podcast, right, where it's a back and forth between two or more people over money. That's actually not what I teach. I teach that negotiation is steering. It's any conversation, not just the money conversations, not just the conversations where you're battling over resources, but any conversation where you're steering a relationship. And so it's not just about money. It's often about teaching people how to value you. It's often about achieving the intangibles in life, you know, those things that make our lives worth living, you know, freedom, advancement, a sense of accomplishment, recognition. Negotiation is all of those. It's how we create our own story.
1: Okay, that sounds great. (laughs) So let's hear about these questions.
2: (laughs) You're right, all right, let's get back. So in fact, the, the first question that people should be asking in negotiation is actually not when they sit down with somebody else. So, Pete, by the time you and I sit down to negotiate, half of the process is already done. And that's the part of the process that starts at home with me. So before I even sit down with somebody, I need to be asking myself questions. And the first question I tell people to ask in every scenario is this. What's the problem I want to solve? You know, Pete, i found that whether you're talking about in corporate contexts or in a more entrepreneurial scenario, people want to jump immediately to solutions. There's budget allocation, and I'm the leader of my department, and I want to go in immediately and say, this is where my department's number should be. But wait a second. What's the problem I want to solve? Am I merely looking for X number of dollars here because I'm allocating it to certain projects? Or in the process of this, am I also trying to raise awareness about what my team did last quarter? Am I also trying to communicate the importance of my department to the company's overall mission? Thinking about the problem you want to solve not only shapes what you ask for, but how you ask for it. It is the first stop in any negotiation.
1: Okay, so we're, we're thinking clearly about the problem that that you want to solve. and in so doing I think that that probably reframes any number of things and, and opens up a lot of possibilities. maybe just weren't even on top of mind, but before you went there. So, so that's awesome. What's next? Sure. Well, how many questions would you like to do? <laughs> I understand you got 10. so maybe let's let's get the, the rundown preview listing and then you know dive deeper into a couple.
2: Okay. All right. So let's talk next. So you've thought about the problem you want to solve. I think the next stop is really thinking about what you need from this negotiation. And when I'm asking people to consider their needs, I ask them to put them into two buckets. So the first bucket is kind of the low-hanging fruit in most negotiations. It's what I call the tangibles. Right? The things that you can touch, see, or count. So I need this amount of money. I need this many people for headcount to grow my division. The intangibles though, often complete the picture. Those are the values that we stand for and that really drive our negotiation. So for example, you know, if I'm the head of the department going in for resources, In addition to saying, I need X, Y, and Z tangibles, I might be thinking, you know, I need acknowledgement from my CEO for what we did for the bottom line last year. And then that intangible can very often shape how I negotiate. The trick is, Pete, that when you have these intangibles, like I need some recognition, you gotta look inward and ask yourself, what would recognition look like for me here? In other words, you got to take that and make it concrete so that then it's a basis for you to negotiate from.
1: Yeah, excellent. And so in terms of we start with the problem mm-hmm. and then, you know, what it is that I need and and have that be clear in terms of, you're right, acknowledgement can take many flavors and, and formats in terms of, you know, is it public? Is it private? Is it um Uh, Just like, hey, great job. (laughs) You know, one sentence email. You know, that's good enough. You know, what do you need?
2: Pete, you joke, but I swear to you. So part of what I do at Columbia Law School is I help people negotiate their way out of large conflicts. So recognition for one person looks like a seven figure number. Recognition for somebody else looked like a certificate. That he put on his wall, a certificate of appreciation. It truly looks different for every person, and you have to honor what that looks like for you. Ask for More is all about tuning out the noise of what other people think you should need and tuning in to what things like recognition and freedom and respect look like for you.
1: You're right. And I like that when you talk about freedom. I mean, If we think about sort of a salary or compensation picture, it may very well be it's like, okay, well, we don't have that in the budget. Fair enough. I would like some additional vacation days. And so then on a dollars per hour or day basis, you might still feel whole uh, with regard to achieving what you wanted to achieve.
2: A hundred percent. And you've pointed out something really important, which is there's almost never just one driver in a negotiation. Money is something you can negotiate for. It's not the only thing you should negotiate for. And if you've gone in with a complete list of what you need, I need freedom, I need appropriate compensation for what I'm doing, then that gives you the basis to be able to say, okay, so what can we do on the salary? What can we do on a work schedule? What can we do on vacation? And how about mentorship or training possibilities? In this way, You're not just myopically zoning in on the money. I want for you to get that and everything else that's going to satisfy your needs.
1: Let's talk a bit about those emotions here, because as I'm imagining, as I I'm put myself in the shoes of a listener, who says, boy, let, th- th- there's a context in which I'm I'm starting to ask for, I'm asking for more. I'm asking for a lot, <laughs> for the money, for the work schedule I want, for the for the vacation I want. I, I think this can give rise to, you know, some fear. And so was like, oh, am I being whiny or needy or or hard to work with or, or, or asking for too much too soon? Is this even appropriate? Uh, we deal with that issue
2: huge huge issue and can i say pete i think this is even more of an issue right now than usual all the time people are having this conversation in our head it's not just am i whiny or am i needy for a lot of people it's am i worth it do i really believe that i am worth what i am asking for that is where negotiation starts and i have to tell you that fear you were describing is so much more present now. Every day, I get a note from somebody I don't know asking me, can I really negotiate even right now, even when I'm desperate for a job, even when I really need some money coming in the door? And the answer is that not only can you, you should. I want to reframe that conversation in people's heads. Yes, times are tough right now. On the other hand, isn't now the time when every dollar of your company's money should be spent on somebody who's going to be able to achieve results and shouldn't that person be you why not you managing that internal emotional conversation is key to negotiation success and so for that reason I ask people to write down their feelings, what I call the F word, before they go in and they negotiate, because it's in the process of airing those things out, recognizing that you're feeling them and persevering through any way that you're going to get to the other side of that mountain.
1: Yeah, I really like that. And, and I guess the, the what you're worth piece I think there's a lot of bad places you could look for that or, or suboptimal, shall I say. Like, hey, what you were paid at the last place or last year you know, may or may not be a, a reflective, sensible answer to what you're worth. I imagine, you know, your your market research in terms of, hey, supply and demand for this position and what they tend to get paid is, is worth it. And, and then I think, you know, for, for listeners of this show, it's helpful to just think about how committed, motivated, ambitious, dedicated, skillful you are at your job relative to uh, the other people in, in your office, and, and maybe you're surrounded by higher performers, but it's it's often the case. People say, "Wow, I, <laughs> a lot of people just aren't really doing their job that many hours out out of the day here." So, hot dog, you know, I'm I'm pretty diligent. So, I I, I might be worth two or three times <laughs> what my my peers are getting paid.
2: You know, I've counseled thousands of people. Most people are underestimating themselves and not overestimating. You know, research tells people that when you ask for more, your asks should be optimistic, specific, and justifiable. A lot of times we remember that we need to justify our asks, but we don't remember the optimistic part. Take the best case, justifiable scenario and start from there, because remember, it's very rare that you're gonna get more than what you ask for. Yeah, right. So your ask sets the ceiling.
1: That, that's excellent. So it, it's sort of like the most that's that's not absurd. You're like, come on, you know? So just just a, a bit of a lower that it's like, well, hey, this is in the 90th percentile for this role, but uh, hey, I think I'm a, a top 10% performer. So it just seems sensible. A hundred percent, that's right. Oh, I like that a lot. And I also want to say, you know, hey, can I ask now, you know, even amidst economic uncertainties and, and, and COVID and such, I recall we had uh, the folks from the Paychecks and Balances podcast, great guys, Rich and Marcus, who uh, on the show, and one of them said, you know what, I have blanket approval to give a 10% raise to anybody who asks but almost nobody asks. It was like, wow, that, that was eye opening. A lot of people making these decisions do have that leeway, just built in, no higher authority approval, even necessary. Has that been your observation?
2: It has. In fact, just in the last two weeks, I've negotiated with two separate organizations that initially said, we have no room to negotiate. And I asked, and almost immediately got the 10%, almost immediately. And so it's as though the form letter goes out saying this is the rate, but it's true. People, in fact, here's the secret. People expect you to negotiate. That's the truth. People expect you to negotiate even in a pandemic. And you know what's great when you negotiate during a pandemic? In the process of advocating for yourself, you are showing the company how you will advocate for them. Always, always negotiate.
1: Yeah, I I like that a lot. Okay, so we talked about the fear piece. That's great. So being convinced that you're worth it. And we talked about the the first two questions. What's after that?
2: You know, actually, Pete, we've talked about the first three because the third one is about emotions and we kind of got there. You know, after we talk about feelings... The next thing I like for people to do, you know, this is a really, really powerful question. I like people to ask themselves this How have I achieved this successfully in the past? And here's the reason because oftentimes, you know, we're facing a scenario and we're feeling a bit anxious about negotiating. We forget that we have handled things successfully before. If you're about to negotiate for yourself or raise your prices or ask for a higher salary, remember the last time you advocated for yourself, write down the strategies you used and see what might be utilized here to make you more successful. The thing about this question, Pete, is how have I handled this successfully in the past? It has two powerful functions in negotiation. Number one the mere fact of asking yourself this question there is research to show that if you go into negotiate having thought about a prior success you're more likely to do better simply by having thought about it but the second reason to think about a prior success is it's a data generator very often the strategies we've used in the past to make ourselves successful will work again in the future now I want to answer, Pete, a question that I think your listeners may be thinking. Some of them are thinking, you know, this is great, Alex, if I have a prior success that's right on point, but what if I'm trying to do something I've never done before? Fine. I've never, for example, published a book and promoted a book during a pandemic. First time, okay? But I looked back and I thought, okay, what are the elements of this? What do I need to do? How can I boil this down? And I thought, okay, I need to get a lot of people on board. I need to communicate clearly and powerfully around the message and create a massive team to support me. When have I done that before? Oh, I ran my husband's campaign for local office five years ago, went back, looked at the strategies I used as his campaign manager and applied them to my book promotion campaign. It was incredibly successful. Sometimes even a seemingly unrelated prior success is gonna be just the thing to give you some strategies to use in your negotiation.
1: That's excellent in terms of, there's all sorts of carryover in terms of, it's not the bullseye, okay, a book in a pandemic, sure. Uh, That's one of a kind, but certainly, yeah, skills, experiences that, that have some relevance, some carryover you know, zero in on those. And that is great in terms of double barrel. You can bring that up, you know, if it comes up and you feel all the more resolute and convicted about you being worth it for having gone there. So that's excellent.
2: Yes. And if I can speak to that point, Pete, you know, remember we talked about sort of psyching yourself out, almost giving yourself the no before anybody else can. If you are somebody who has difficulty advocating for yourself, My guess is, if you're listening to this podcast, that you are great at negotiating on behalf of other people, your department, your friends, your kids. I want you to write down what makes you so successful when you negotiate for other people and then use it for yourself. Over and over again, I have worked on this exercise with corporate leaders and they tell me they find it unbelievably helpful in channeling those strengths to go in and ask for more.
1: Oh, I love it. Because that just sort of cuts through all of the (laughs) the self-doubt stuff (laughs) in terms of if I am negotiating for Pete, Inc. (laughs) as opposed to me, (laughs) then you're operating a bit differently. So that's great. I want to get your take on, uh, this might be advanced, but I think it comes up. It's come up for me and I don't do a ton of negotiating. When's the right time to think about bringing in an agent or a lawyer? When should you do that versus not do that? I remember when I was closing on my house, it seemed like the lawyers kind of made things more intense and and a little kind of harder to get into a win-win. I I remember at one point they're like... um, uh, did they say it was a shakedown for them to impugn our integrity that way? And she's like, oh, no, that was, that, that was just me summarizing. Like, oh, we get some misunderstandings and some intensity. But at the same time, lawyers and agents are professionals with a skill set that, that have their use. How do you think about that game?
2: So interesting. You know, Pete, I'm a lawyer. And yet I think we often get in the way, right? We have a way, and it goes down to how a lot of lawyers are trained. So again, I have a JD, I'm a practicing lawyer, but for my first two years of law school, before I took the class that I'm now teaching, I basically was a hammer and all I saw were nails. And I was looking for how I could escalate a conflict at any turn. You know, the truth is, Pete, I do make now, I do make use sometimes of lawyers and agents. I have literary agents, I have speaking agents, all sorts of people who work with me. The truth is that nobody's going to be a better messenger than you. Even if you have an agent, I work really hard to steer that relationship and to help use them for the things that they are great at, right? Some of the Industry-specific knowledge. That might be an occasion when I would hire, right? This is, you know, very industry-specific. They're going to be able to help me fill in all the things that we could negotiate for. But how we prioritize and that strategy, that has to come from you. That has to come from the client. And there is no substitute
1: for that. Okay. Okay. Understood, and, and, and that makes a lot of great sense in terms of if if they've done you know many book deals or or speaking gigs, it's like well they kind of know what people are paying because it can vary wildly. A keynote might sell for three thousand, it might sell for thirty thousand. What are the nuances that determine uh, where you go within that massive range?
2: Absolutely, I have the best in the business, both on the literary and the speaking front, and still when I choose an agent. I choose somebody who wants me to partner with them, somebody who can come to the table with their expertise, and I can come to the table and say, might we prioritize it this way? Could we say it this way? And this way, we are working together as partners on the ultimate result.
1: Okay, well, I'd love to zoom in now in, in terms of, let's say, you know, there's, there's not a big high-stakes negotiation, per se, coming up for a professional, but you know, this is sparking some things for people like, you know what, I would like to have more in my job, either in terms of flexibility or learning and development or any number of things that kind of outside the the big promotion, raise cycle or new job opportunity. You're sort of, hey, you've been in a job for a while and uh, there's some things you'd like. Any any pro tips on on broaching that topic with boss and leadership to maximize the odds, they'll say yes.
2: Absolutely. So. This is advice I give normally, but I think is especially apt during a pandemic. I would choose your timing carefully. And I mean that from two angles. First, I would consider what's going on for the other person. What do they have coming down this week? Right now is a time I think about myself. Here it is. We're recording this mid-August and I'm staring down the barrel at a fall semester I'm not sure what's happening with my teaching at Columbia. I think I'm virtual. Not sure what's happening with my fourth grader. If somebody came to me the moment that my school released its plan and asked me for something, I'm not going to have the bandwidth to consider it properly. So think about what's going on for them, earnings, whatever it might be. Time it from that perspective. I would also think about timing from your perspective What's going to be the best timing to increase your leverage? Did you just deliver on something early? Did you just achieve a great result? Your boss says, Pete, this was an unbelievable job. That could be a great moment to say, thanks so much. I enjoyed working on this. And while I have you, I'd love to get some time on your calendar to talk about my future at the company and where I would love to be in a few years. So taking that opportunity at the most propitious timing to set up the conversation. I would also try to do something where you can see each other's faces. We're virtual. And so the temptation is, do I do it email? You know, do I do by phone? If you're having an important conversation, body language is data. And I want you to have as much data as possible about what the other person is thinking. So I would do that. My last tip for asking, especially right now, is to frame it in a particular way. So when I'm helping people to make their asks for the greatest success, I tell them to execute what I call an I-we. In other words, here's what I'm requesting and here's how we all benefit. In other words, When you have started your negotiation and steered your relationship with your manager by asking questions, by getting to know them, you have now figured out how to frame what you need in a way that it's also going to meet their needs, right? So if you put me on this project that I've been asking for, here's how I'm going to be able to contribute toward your success, that type of thing.
1: Yeah, that, that's excellent. You know, I'm reminded of um, Robert Cialdini's book, Persuasion. there, in terms of like the moment, like what happens just before the conversation starts can make a world of difference. Huge. Absolutely. So I know they're not, secret weapons is not where the action is. Nonetheless, I would love it if you could share with us, what are a few maybe bits of verbiage or scripts, some do's or don'ts in terms of, hey, I hear people say this, don't say that, or I don't hear people say this, and you should say that.
2: Okay. And that's okay, Pete. I use my weapons for good. I do have a secret weapon. And it's actually not about saying this or saying that. It's about the opposite. It's about shutting up. All right. The importance of silence in negotiation. In my book, I teach people three words that I want them to commit to memory and use in every (laughs) negotiation as a guiding principle. And the three words are land the plane. When you make your point, when you ask a question, when you deliver a proposal, deliver it, and then land the plane, close your mouth. Too often, I see people get nervous about the silence, and so they rush in to fill it with a bunch of words that leaves them bidding against themselves or assuming what the other person might say. So in other words, Pete, what do you need to get this done here today? Would $10,000 do it? No, you don't know what Pete needed, right? Maybe he needed five and you overpaid. Maybe he needed mentorship or path to advancement. In other words, say what you're gonna say and land the plane. Silence is not an imposition. It's actually a gift to the other person. It gives them time to think and it prevents you from selling yourself short. Sometimes the less you say, the better.
1: Right, I, I imagine in terms of, I've seen it both ways, in terms of me saying more than I should <laughs> and, and, and others that I'm talking to, like these share numbers, like, you know, if, if that's manageable, you know, it just sort of like really kind of weakens it after the fact. I, I mean, I know things are hard right now with the COVID, as opposed to say $200,000. Silence. <laughs> and, and then they can weigh in on that in terms of like, boy, you know, that is just really way more than we had in mind. Uh, that's going to be challenging for us to pull off versus, okay, now I, I understand what's at stake and then I'll, I'll see what we can do.
2: And may I say, if they answer you and say, that's going to be challenging for us to pull off. Great job. That is great information for you to have. First of all, it means you didn't sell yourself short. And second... Let's say you get that, because I think, Pete, sometimes people talk and talk and talk because they're afraid of getting the no, and so they're trying to eat the silence up with their words at the negotiation table. Don't ever fear the no again, because I'm going to give you four words that you can use when you get a no. Are you ready? Here are the words. What are your concerns? That's it. When somebody says, you know, I think this is going to be hard for us to pull off, say, okay, thanks for letting me know. What are your concerns? Because frequently, if you hear somebody's concerns, you're going to find a way to address those. So have the courage to allow the silence and know that on the other end of that, if somebody expresses a hesitation, you have a tool you can use in the moment. Simply ask their concerns, play their concerns back, summarize them, and then more often than not, you're going to know where the target is that you need to hit and turn that no into a yes.
1: Yeah, you're right. Because the concerns could be any number of things like that could be challenging might mean, well, hey, you know, we're paying someone else for doing almost the same thing, 170k. So it seems a little disruptive or or more about fairness to pay a new person, you know, significantly more to do the same thing. And I don't know if this is good or bad, but but maybe a, a solution to that could be, oh, well, if you'd make you more comfortable, I'm happy to, to sign something indicating that I will not disclose my compensation to anybody. Of course, that's a whole nother controversial issue in terms of information flows and how that impacts different populations. You know, But as an example of a solution, that might be way easier than you thought. Like, oh, it's not so much that they're broke, but it's something completely different.
2: I got to tell you, Pete, marketing my book during a pandemic, I've become a specialist in turning no into yes. When you think about it, One of the things that I lined up was dozens and dozens of in-person speaking engagements. And that was going to be a way for me to get the word out there and for people to buy the book. All of those canceled, obviously. And over and over again, I heard people say, yeah, we're canceling this event and we're not doing something virtual. Every single time I called up and said, what are your concerns? And over and over again, people said things like, well, we've never done it before. We're not sure how to do something that's going to be productive over Zoom. Great. Would it be helpful if we jumped on and I showed you what I have in mind? Or we're not sure our employees are going to want it. Okay, how might you find that out? They're like, all right, we could do a survey. Turns out they really want it. Over and over again, there are concerns that when we met them, it wasn't like me getting over on them, Pete. In every case, we produced something that was of mutual value. And people actually thanked me afterward. The truth is that even with a no, you can ask people about their concerns, you can preserve the relationship, you can strengthen the relationship, and you can still get what you need out of the deal.
1: The other thing I love about that particular phraseology of the question, what are your concerns, is it seems very helpful. Like you're being of service as opposed to What's your problem? (laughs) What's the issue, man? Like, those get after the same information, but it it doesn't land nearly as productively as... What are your concerns? I'm trying to help. Yeah, what's your
2: problem has not gotten me the best results. Yeah, I mostly use that one at home, Pete, to be honest.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, Well, tell me, Alex, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things?
2: Yes. I would like people to know if there's anybody out there listening who thinks negotiation is not for me because I'm not the most aggressive person in the room, or maybe I'm an introvert, or I'm somebody who prioritizes my relationships. I want you to know that all of those things can make you a great negotiator. That really, if you're somebody who is a good listener, you're somebody who gains people's trust, and you're somebody who prioritizes relationships – All you need are the right questions, and you're going to be absolutely fantastic, I promise you.
1: All right. Well, now let's hear some favorite things. Can you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Yes. So a few years ago, I had a student who changed my life. He was a mid-career lawyer, my age, in his early 40s, who came over from India for a year of study at Columbia, And he told me that his life's motto is, only do what only you can do. And I took that on board. And at that time, Pete, I was supposed to write a textbook. I had gotten an offer from a really prestigious legal corporation to write a textbook. And I thought, this is what I should do. I'm a law professor. But then I thought about that. Is this what only I can do? And I thought, no, it's not. There are lots of people who can write textbooks. What I think only I can do, what I think I'm called to do, and what I love doing, is taking negotiation concepts from law school and making them accessible to everyday people in their lives. That is what only I can do. And when I leaned into that, that's when I started writing what would become Ask for More.
1: Well, that quote also just sparked so many things like... I should be outsourcing.
2: (laughs) It is. It's a way to think about managing your time. You know, when I think about the range of tasks I could embark on in a day, is this what only I can do? And if it's not, somebody else is better served to do it.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking about my email inbox. It's gotten out of control. I think 90% of those messages can be handled by others. I've just been a little slow to let go. Or What about privacy? What about, you know, honesty and respect and integrity and... But these are navigable issues, and if that's your mantra, I would have solved this long ago. (laughs) Okay, and how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: Gosh, well, I think my favorite bit of research is the study done by Professor Lee Thompson out of the Kellogg School at Northwestern that found 93% of people are not asking the questions they need to get the most out of negotiation. I remember the day I read that study, it hit me and it accorded perfectly with what I see as a mediator and a negotiation trainer. And that was part of what gave me the impetus to go on and teach about the incredible power of open questions. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite book? you know, I wouldn't be an author if I weren't totally in love with my own book, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything. I would say, other than that, a book that I've been reading recently is The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Claim Their Seat at the Table by Minda Hartz. Minda is an incredibly powerful woman, who speaks directly to women of color in the workplace. And I remember the day I heard her speak, I picked up the book and it's had incredible learnings for me, even as a white person in the workplace, how I can work together with my sisters of color to create the kind of workplace that we all want to exist.
1: And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job?
2: My favorite tool, my husband would probably say my iPhone, but my number one tool that I use, to be honest, is my eyes. I think you would think that negotiation is all about listening to the words. I find that most of the negotiation is me looking at people and taking in what their faces and their bodies are saying most of negotiation is what's between the words in the things that people are holding back or are not giving themselves permission to say. And so the more that I can see people and really see them for who they are, the more effectively I can do my job and help get them to where they want to be.
1: Boy, there's a whole other podcast episode in here. And, and we've done it once with agent Joe Navarro from the FBI on body language. But are there one or two indicators that you found are reliable and show up a lot, like when they do this with their eyes or their mouth or their hands, it tends to mean this, and thus it's very informative?
2: So, Pete, the biggest tip I can give people is to get to know the person you're negotiating with and observe what's called their baseline. So in other words, Pete, if your default is to kind of sit back in your chair and then I say something and all of a sudden you lean forward. I know that I've just had an impact on you." So any kinds of changes from the baseline are things that I notice. The other big thing I see is, you know, people censor their emotions, but it comes out in their body language. Most frequently, I see people telling me yes while they are shaking their head no.
1: We can do that for you, Alex.
2: (laughs) Right. You know, people will be like, yeah, that sounds great. You can't see me, everyone, but I'm shaking my head vigorously back and forth. I see it a shocking number of times. And when I do, I simply say, you know, Pete, your words are telling me yes, but your face is telling me no. So let's talk. What are your concerns? And usually that I treat everything, Pete, a shake of the head people repeatedly touching a necklace or a piece of clothing, a tremor. I treat, what's that?
1: The suprasternal notch below the neck.
2: <laughs> the suprasternal notch. The necklace is very often important. I, you know, I've, I've broken through negotiations just based on a necklace. All of that stuff tells you a story and I treat it like communication and I raise it with people.
1: Okay, and a favorite habit, something you, you do to be awesome at your job.
2: I practice yoga for the sanity of myself and the sanity of those people around me. When I practice yoga, it's a chance for me to be completely present in the moment and I find that that presence, being there every moment and nowhere else, is key to being successful at helping people in negotiation.
1: Okay. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often?
2: So a lot of times people will tell me they're nervous to hold themselves out as an expert or to ask for more because they're concerned about if they stand up as an expert, does that leave less for other people? And I want you to know That when you ask for more, you benefit other people. When you ask for more in your job, you make sure that your manager gets your best, most fired up version every day at work. When you ask for more at home and ask for what you need, your partner, your kids, your loved ones get the most present and fulfilled person possible. Ignoring who you are and ignoring your needs helps no one. And everybody benefits when you ask for more.
1: Oh, you know, I love that so much. And I just watched this movie. It's been around for a while, but Paul Rudd and Reese Witherspoon in How Do You Know? I love Paul Rudd. Everything he does is good. And (laughs) she drops into Tony Shalhoub plays a a psychiatrist. And she's like, so is there like generally anything that you generally tell people that generally works for everyone? And he said, uh, this is so wise from a movie, a little comedy. He said... um, figure out what you really want and learn how to ask for it. I was like, well, oh, that's some real wisdom from, <laughs> from this, this comedy right on.
2: It's true. And that, in a nutshell, is what I teach. The first part of that is really figuring out what you want, not what somebody else wants for you, what you want, what's going to make your life worthwhile, and then figuring out how to ask for that thing.
1: All right. And Alex, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: Sure. So I'd love for people to get in touch on my website, which is Asks, com. You can also find me on Instagram at Alexandra B. Carter, on LinkedIn, and very reluctantly on Twitter.
1: And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs.
2: Yes. I want you to try to go out and get a no. I want you to strive for the no before the end of the year, because in doing so, I know you're going to come back to me and tell me that you got more yeses than you could ever think possible.
1: All right. Alex, this has been a treat. I I wish you all the best in all the ways you're asking for more.
2: Pete, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much.
1: I'll tell you what, that phrase, what are your concerns, has been burned into my brain. And I think it is going to be my knee-jerk reaction for no, as opposed to, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> it's like, nope, 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 Reprogram. The correct response to no is, what are your concerns? You know, just like the correct response to someone just said something that made me furious, we learned previously from Aaron Schmuckler is tell me more about that. Someone used like, I disagree. I'm getting kind of angry and irritated. Hmm, Tell me more about that. For the reference, if I'm talking to you and I say that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm angry or irritated. It just might mean I'm curious to hear more about that or I need a moment to think about things. But it's a great phrase. Tell me more about that. And this is right up there. What are your concerns? Brilliant stuff from Alex. Again, the show notes, the transcript and links to albums we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP597. I hope to catch you next time